what surprised you the most? What was the result that when you saw it, you thought, oh, I wasn't expecting to see that? And focus on that and figure out a way of presenting it to the audience so that they see the before and after. I'm David Otey, and this is The Power of Story and Science, a mix of content and conversations on how to bring your science to life through powerful presentations. In this episode, you will hear a conversation with Anthony Lamantia of the Fralin Biomedical Research Institute at Virginia Tech. Like my previous guest, Dr. Lamantia started out intending to be a clinician, not a researcher. But he did become a scientist, albeit one with an interest in theater and literature. Hear how those interests intersect in his love of metaphor for describing his science. Welcome to another episode of The Power of Story and Science. I'm your host, David Ote, and on this program, we talk about communicating technical information, whether you're a scientist, engineer, someone else giving technical presentations. Our theme is telling the story of your work so that people are engaged with your information. And I'm very pleased to have as my guest today, someone who as a scientist, I believe, uh, I have seen evidence of being an outstanding communicator. I think you're really going to enjoy hearing from him. His name is Anthony Lamantia. He is with an institute that he'll tell you about at Virginia Tech. Anthony, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. It's, a, it's great to be here, David. Thanks so much for inviting me. You're very welcome. You know, when uh, I first learned of your work, someone directed me to your website. And what I loved was that immediately I saw this very direct statement prominently displayed near the top of your website, big letters in a box, and in plain English for someone like me, <laughs> it talks about um, rules that guide how the brain is constructed and how when those rules are broken, people develop autism spectrum disorder, schizophrenia, and other behavioral disorders. And I just thought, what a great concept that I can grasp. Rules for how a brain is constructed. <laughs> so I, I'd love to kind of take that as a jumping off point. Would you uh, tell us all a little bit about the work that you that you are currently doing and um, sure. maybe a bit about your, your journey as a scientist and communicator that got you there? Great. So um, I am currently a uh, professor of biology at Virginia Tech, and I'm a laboratory head, the head of the Laboratory of Developmental Disorders and Genetics at the Fralin Biomedical Research Institute, which is part of the Virginia Tech School of Medicine in Roanoke. And my work is always focused on those rules that guide building the brain. This is something that I became fascinated with when I was still an undergraduate. And I decided that trying to figure out what those rules were at a variety of levels of explanation, both you know, just watching the brain being constructed and saying, well, you know, what is the process? And then asking, okay, what are the underlying rules? What is it that actually guides this remarkable growth and differentiation of this incredible organ that really does, it makes us us. And that seemed to me to be 
such a absorbing question, something that, you know, you could really spend a lifetime being constantly fascinated and never lose. It will never make you lose your attention on the enormous problem, but also it's actually, there's something almost aesthetically pleasing about it. I mean, there's <laughs> something aesthetically pleasing about thinking about, you know, I'm trying to explain the organ that gives me the capacity to explain things. And the other thing is, is that there's also an aesthetic pleasure in looking at biology and particularly the brain is beautiful in its cell biology, the way that brain cells look, their shapes, um, and the way that you visualize them is often quite beautiful in terms of both the colors and the dimensionality of that. And then finally, um, I think there's, there's something beautiful about figuring out an orderly set of instructions for putting something together. And mm -hmm. I think in terms of biology, particularly developmental biology, which is basically what I do and the underlying genetics, that that's really the core of what we're supposed to be doing. We're, we're trying to look for, well, what are the instructions to build this? Mm -hmm. And, and so, you know, just like the instructions you get either at Ikea, which often don't allow you to build <laughs> what you're supposed to build <laughs> or better instructions that you often get for, you know, whatever home project you're working on. Those instructions basically embody the, the, the object you're trying to make. And it's that translation and your ability to visualize it and make it real that I think is the core of what I consider when I'm at my best doing my work. And so, and the way that I came to this was when I started out, I had no intention of being a scientist. Uh, and, you know, as, as is often the case, you go to college and you're a good student. And so people tell you, go to medical school. And I was mm -hmm. actually in a six-year medical school program at the University of Chicago. And I realized that that wasn't what I wanted to do with my life. And so I left that. Um, I started working in a lab. And I also had an interest in the arts, in literature, which I continue to have um, as a reader or a spectator. I don't do these things anymore. But at the time, I actually was more active in those sorts of things, including in technical theater. And so that was something that gave another dimension to my awareness of how you tell a story, because mm -hmm. I had seen performances put together and I understood the craft behind it. And indeed, when I'm putting together a talk or when I'm working with someone in my laboratory to put together a talk, I remember what it was like seeing a director direct actors and oh, give man. them some sense of, okay, this is what you're trying to communicate to the audience. This will emphasize this moment. And I think translating those sorts of skills to teaching and to presenting your work, or even when you write sometimes, particularly, um, you know, I've written a textbook on neuroscience and 
to my co-authors, because this was a group effort, and we're now in our seventh edition, but I always say to them, we're writing a script for an instructor who may or may not know as much about this material as we do, mm, so that okay. she or he can sit down and plan a lecture for their students and basically be able to deliver the information in a way that's compelling, that is not only well-organized, but that, again, has an arc that you know grabs the attention and then allows you to basically give the explanations at detail of something that your audience has already decided, this is exciting, I want to hear about this. And that is often really one of the challenges of writing a paper even um, mm -hmm. for your colleagues. You know, I always joke that you write for the six people who care, but which is, <laughs> which I borrowed from Stephen Jay Gould. Um, but I think it's that, that ability to basically distill either the question or the concept that you're, that you want to discuss or that you want to address with new data and let the reader know or let the audience know, yeah, this is really exciting. This is interesting. And why? I mean, I think you can't simply state it as a, you know, as a received fact. You have to actually explain briefly, well, why is it interesting? And that sometimes is a challenge. I mean, you know, I mm -hmm. think, you know, in the, when I had this burgeoning interest in the theater, you know, I remember reading that a play or a musical is made in its first five minutes. And I think similarly, a paper whether it's a data paper or a review article or a talk that you give um, on your own work is made in either the first five sentences or those first five minutes where mm -hmm. you really are constructing a framework to say, okay, this is why this is exciting. And now, you know, come with me and let's work through something new that gives us more insight or just a basic, more detailed understanding of this issue. And so I think, you know, that's what we're, we're asked to do as scientists once we've actually done the nuts and bolts work is we're asked to create a story, as you say. I think you've you said very nicely about what your podcast is about, but to create a story that is rigorously told so that the audience knows that they can believe it and trust it, but nevertheless engagingly told and mm. told in a way that is also accessible. I mean, I think sometimes we forget, you know, those six people who care, those may not be the only people who need to look at what you've written. Those may not be the only people who are coming to a seminar you may give. And even students in a lecture hall may not be completely interested in the long run and what you have to say. And you have to remember that you're talking to all of those people and somehow find the way to basically provide enough access for those who are not expert enough to find a way in. Even if all of the information isn't there, you at least open doors for them to get to the other, the additional information. Okay. And so, you know, and there's a variety of ways to do this. I mean, I think, you know, often 
you do it by given, giving a very encapsulated explanation of something that arises as part of the story you're telling, but you don't have the time to elaborate. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you give references. I, you know, I think it's one of the things, particularly when you're writing, that selecting key references really does for you is you can say, okay, here is this thing that is related. It's really interesting. I'm going to give you in a sentence or a phrase why this is important here and give you enough to understand that. But then if you want to know more, here's where you would go. And, you know, of course you need to do that judiciously so that you're not overwhelming and distracting the reader or the listener. But I think doing that, you know, it also says that, you know, everything that we do as a scientist, everything that I do as a scientist, and I think more broadly we should be thinking about is placing what we're doing in the context of, you know, a remarkable amount of work that's been done that's related because, you know, the whatever phrase you choose, we stand on the shoulder of giants, you know, we're part of a chain of knowledge or a fabric of scholarship. All of those things are true. Um, And what, what any one of us does in the moment reflects an enormous amount of what's come before. And so I think, you know, the challenge there is to acknowledge that, but not to overwhelm someone with it as well. So I, you know, again, it's this balance that you try to find whenever you're speaking or Mm -hmm. um, writing. And so, yeah. Well, well, let's talk a little bit about that, about that balance, because um, you said a moment ago that you want the, the story that you tell to be told rigorously and also to be accessible. Right. So it needs to have the scientific rigor, the information that makes it sound and yet also be interesting and engaging and draw people in. And as you say, draw in people who may be at different levels in terms of their background knowledge of your, of your topic. So what are some of the things that run through your mind as you're trying to strike that balance? Well, you know, I think one of the things that runs through my mind is is to find, you know, an engaging metaphor or comparison that initially will both challenge whoever's listening to you to say, okay, well, why would that comparison be relevant to what I'm going to hear? And so it kind of plants, I try to do this whenever I give a talk, I try to plant that sort of image in the minds of my listeners. And, you know, sometimes it can be really very metaphorical, like much of the work in my lab um, at its outset, and still we think about these issues, was to make the argument that the way that you build the front part of the brain, the forebrain, is basically an adaptation of the way that you build things that come off of the midline and are bilaterally symmetrical. And, you know, this process has a fancy name for when you build limbs or jaw parts. But I always would introduce this issue as saying, you know, the way that you build your limbs and the aortic arches of your heart and the facial bones as is the same set of rules as what's used to build the forebrain. And it's similar to thinking about a variety of construction sites, a big skyscraper, 
a small cabin in the woods, <laughs> a strip mall in the suburbs. All of them have different plans, different outcomes, and some different materials that are used. But at its base, there are tools that are common at each of those construction sites. And what I'm going to tell you about today is those common sets of tools, the screwdrivers and hammers and drills and other basic tools that are necessary to build any structure. And so, mm -hmm. you know, and I don't know if that's the most effective, but it's what I did and what I have done in this, in, in telling that story. And I found that it did actually help the listener or the reader sort of work through what then would follow, which was, you know, of course, a lot of detail, molecular detail, cell biological detail, and genetic detail. And But if I could come back to that and say, you know, this is one of those key tools that is used at every site, um, then it at least gave me an anchor to remind myself to give people a framework to think about what I just told them, the detail that I just told them. And I think it also, I hoped that it helped my audience mm -hmm. as they listened or read. Hmm. And it so them a, a, a framework in their existing life experience, exactly knowledge to hang your new information on. Right. And it also, you know, in this instance, I wanted them to make the comparisons between these very different morphogenetic. That's a fancy word for saying I put something together, mm -hmm. um, but these very different morphogenetic processes that gave you in one set in on one outcome your limbs and hands, but in another outcome, it actually can guide building the cerebral cortex versus, which is the big covering of your brain that looks mm -hmm. all sort of curly, bits. the big, <laughs> the big wrinkly bits. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and all the stuff that's underneath it, because it turns out that it, the same molecules are used. Some of the same um, basic ways that cells talk to each other during early development, um, the conversation that's had in the limbs and the conversation between early cell classes that's had in the front part of the brain, the forebrain, uses the same vocabulary. Um, and then the same tools are used to build things. So, mm -hmm. you know, those sorts of metaphors, those sorts of comparisons are helpful. They were helpful for me in thinking about it. And I think that's the other thing that I found is important. And that is, is that when I begin thinking about a new problem, even before I ever have to talk about it or write about it, I find I'm looking for the metaphor. I'm looking for some way of finding mm -hmm. a comparator to sort of give me a way of thinking about it, even if it turns out to be wrong. At least I have a starting point to say, okay, well, if this is a, if this is a metaphoric uh, way of thinking about this, that this is similar to X, Y, or Z, whatever, um, then that allows me to sort of go along and focus on things that may actually either support that comparison or may actually say, no, that comparison's not right. You have to modify it. Okay. And yeah. so, you know, at some point, those things get translated in much more specific and precise hypotheses that you test that basically rely on the vocabulary and the variables 
have the science in front of you. But I think having the awareness that eventually, once you've done the experiments carefully and rigorously, and you know that you're testing the hypothesis that you set out to test with the data you gather, then if you have in mind some sort of broader way of explaining it, that allows you to more easily translate it back to translate it. Yeah. To give a structure. Because mm-hmm. I think one of the hardest things, I mean, I think everybody agrees, one of the hardest things when you're writing is the blank page or the blank screen now. We don't mm-hmm. we don't use pages anymore. No. Um <laughs> but um and when you're giving a talk, often those first five minutes getting going basically not only convincing your audience that what you have to say is interesting, but finding your own way of narrating the story, settling into it. And that's often why, uh, not often, always, when I'm working with students and postdocs, particularly if they're going out to give an important talk, either at a meeting or um, for a job, I actually have them script the first several sentences okay so that they actually have an anchor to get going because i think that's really important not only for the audience but for you as a communicator if you have to get up and tell someone a story simply reading a script isn't very compelling particularly in science because i think there is something to be said for the spontaneity of when you're giving a talk and you look at the data and you might even see something new or find a new way of explaining it in that moment with the energy of the audience or the questions from the audience coming at you. But getting started, no one's going to ask you a question before you've said anything, right? And so having that sort of that anchor point and knowing it in your knowing it so well that you can just basically start there and you don't have to um and ah and oh yes sort of right <laughs> because we all do that right we 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 stammer and stagger through the beginnings of a conversation sometimes even if it turns out to be a good conversation but in this forum particularly if you have a limited amount of time you don't want to waste it that's right that's right and every extra time to establish a connection with an audience such that they trust you and see you as a, a a trusted source of expert information. Exactly. And I think if you give the audience something that gives them a way in without overwhelming them with jargon or complicated ideas at the outset, there is more trust because I remember the best teachers and the best speakers that I heard. They always gave me something that allowed me to fix my attention, not only to them, but to the idea. Oh, and I'd like you to repeat that, to fix their attention, not only to them, but to their idea. I really like that. No, and, and, and I think... A particular time when, when someone did that and, and what you remember about how they did it? Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, uh, there are a couple of times that I can think of. Uh, once I was at a meeting in uh, it was in hawaii in december so that was the only reason i thought i was going uh, <laughs> who could say no right of course. um but someone so we had had this idea about faces and limbs and hearts and 
four brains all being built using the same toolkit. And I was at a meeting and a speaker clinician got up and gave a talk about this fairly rare genetic disorder. It turns out not to be as rare as, as it was originally thought. And they, it was a psychiatry meeting, but one of the things they said was that, well, even though these kids eventually develop schizophrenia at a much higher rate than in the typical population, when they start out, they have heart malformations and limb malformations and cleft palates. And that was just so straightforward. They didn't talk about schizophrenia risk and all of the genetics behind it. They just described the natural history of this disease in such a... And I was sitting there and I said, that's it. And they followed it up by saying, you know, and some of you may know that in the schizophrenic population, many investigators are now measuring minor physical anomalies. Well, that was not a phrase I had heard of before, but then he explained it. He said, and you know, all of those are, is there slight variations in facial structure or digit structure? And I said, okay, this is it. I need to know more about this genetic disorder. And indeed, you know, one of the things that happened after that was that we made mouse models of the genetic disorder and we've spent a lot of time using it as a starting point to learn more about the shared rules that build all of these sites. And then how once the basic sca scaffold is built, once the framework is built, how the rules are then elaborated to give you a much different outcome in the brain, of course, than mm -hmm. in the heart or the limbs. But the key there was all of a sudden, and I think partly it was that I also realized you know, this person was going to tell me about the specific pathology of schizophrenia in this particular group of, of children and, and young adults with this genetic lesion, if you will, um, this genetic change. But that this was in the context of pathology, things that go wrong, and that you could actually think about the pathology of not putting a brain together properly in the same way as you thought about cleft palate or fused digits, that this is just a pathology of not putting things together right. A different result of a tool not working correctly. Exactly. And so, you know, and I, yeah, I remember there. <laughs> very good, very good. And, you know, I remember going home on the plane and it's a long ride. So, of course, <laughs> you know, if you're not going to sleep or, or watch the inane movie, you have to do something. So I remember, you know, thinking about this and actually even writing a few notes about what I should look for um, in the literature once I got back to UNC. And so the. Um, the main thing is, is that I think, you know, every listener is primed, you know, you don't go into anything, particularly once you've established that you have a scientific interest and you're trying to learn more. So you're primed to listen for things. But as soon as someone really gives you information that is clearly relevant and they provide it for you in a way that's accessible and compelling, you click in or anyway, I do. And that was one example. Um, and, you know, I, there's several others too, but. Um, 
I, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of the, of the time here. We're going to wrap up mm-hmm. in the next um, couple of minutes, which is a shame because I'd love to listen to you talk for much longer. You make this so fascinating. Uh, oh, uh, I'm flattered. Thank you. <laughs> you used a word several times that I want to underline, and it's the word moment. And the mm-hmm. first time I heard you use it was when you were talking about your experience in the theater, mm-hmm. watching a director... Uh, explain to actors that uh, there's there's a moment here. And I do theater as well. Um, mm-hmm. And that's why I, I really kind of resonated with that because I've had directors tell me, you know, what is what is the moment we're looking for here? What When this character comes onto the stage, what does he or she want that's driving toward that moment? And I, I often, when I'm coaching people and telling their stories, uh, I, I always tell them, you know, the best stories are about moments. Not mm-hmm. ongoing processes, but moments. And you had a moment there in Hawaii. I mean, yes, there was obviously there was a longer period of time where this went on, and you had plenty of time to think about it. But that moment when you heard this connection or felt this connection between cleft palate and malformed limbs and a problem in the brain, um, that was an aha moment for you. Right. Exactly. So, um, let me ask you if we can sum up the discussion this way. How in in just a, a few sentences of instruction, because instructions, the rules, <laughs> this becomes a, a theme throughout what you've been saying. How would you instruct one of your students to convey the key moment in their research if they're giving a talk? or a poster or something? So I think one of the things that I usually ask the person, the student or postdoc, what do you think is the most surprising piece of data that you have? Oh, I love that. What surprised you the most? What was the result that when you saw it, you thought, oh, I wasn't expecting to see that? And focus on that. Build to that. And figure out a way of presenting it to the audience so that they see the before and after. And I, you know, this is what I always say. Let them see the before and after. This is what we thought. You know, this is where it starts. This is what happens. And, you know, there usually is, at least when I plan a talk and when I work with the people who are in the lab, there's usually one bit of information. It may not be the most detailed, or it may not be even the one that fully explains things, but it's the one that takes you over the threshold to saying, okay, we have something really intriguing. And so that's, you know, and sometimes it can be numerical data where you show a graph and you show how something changed, but you have numbers. Sometimes it can just be two pictures, you know, before and after, if you will. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like a makeover. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, and there's there's a sort of there's a there's a clear. As you say, moment, there's a break there where where everybody's imagination is engaged. Okay, if it works that way, how is it working? And, you know, so that's what I try to get the people who are in the lab as they're planning their talks to look for. 
when we write papers, that's also what I look for. I often say, what is going to be the turning point? I mean, if you want to use the the theatrical analogy, what's going to be the act one finale that makes the audience want to come back for act oh, two. <laughs> wonderful. I love that. There's so much um, of the time, all we get in a scientific report is act two. Right. The, the result. This is the result of what we did. And, and without that struggle, how do you get someone engaged and interested in what your result is? It's exactly right. And I think, you know, I, if I'm going to take the time to, do the work and present it, I think I should, it's my obligation actually to take the time to figure out how to write a good act one, if you will, yes. um, how to set up the story, to set up the characters, if you will, the variables, the data, and make it compelling enough that act two not only is something you want to hear, but also that act two makes sense. That act and makes so, sense and is something you want to hear. That, right. That is a, that's a great uh, summation there. Um, you know, as, as tempting as I, as, as it would be to end the conversation here, I do want to ask you one more thing. We'll go a sure. little longer because nobody's, nobody's timing this. <laughs> when you go to a meeting, let's say, and mm -hmm. you're presenting a paper, um, I, I often talk about having a, a specific purpose in mind in any presentation. And often for a scientific presentation, that purpose might be to find um, a collaborator mm -hmm. or find another uh, funding source or secure your, your funding for another year or something like this. When, when you go into um, a, a meeting or a conference and you have the opportunity to give a report on your work... Are you often thinking what's going to be the the outcome of this other than disseminating information? I mean, what are you looking for in terms of follow-up and how do you connect with people to get the follow-up you're looking for? Well, you know, it depends, of course, on the audience. And I think that's one of the things that really is true. I mean, as in everything, knowing your audience is really essential. Um, I also... I believe in not being coy. If you want someone to ask you to the prom, you say, I would like to be asked to the prom, basically. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I we started work that basically was motivated by our ongoing fascination with this relationship between building the face in particular and building the brain that operates it. We started work on disrupted feeding and swallowing, particularly in infants who go on to either be clinically diagnosed with neurodevelopmental disorders like autism and ADHD, or who have known genetic syndromes. And so, and in one instance, I was giving a talk on this to at, um, a children's hospital where there was a big feeding and swallowing group that did clinical feeding and swallowing speech therapists and physical therapists, as well as, as neurologists and pediatricians. And I actually built the talk so that there were moments where I knew that I would ask the audience. So this is what we know in an animal model of a particular genetic syndrome, what is it that you think is a key clinical correlate? You know, and I won't give you the specifics, but there were many specific moments where I thought, okay, I need to ask them and I want to hear from them. And so, and that actually made, it made a lot of things easier. It made 
you know, meeting with people after I'd given my talk. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. I gave my talk at the beginning of the day and I had meetings with a lot of people who were basically clinical feeding and swallowing um, experts. And so I made it clear where the where I thought the questions that we were trying to answer might benefit from the insight of people with clinical experience of parallel issues. And I think that's really important. And in that instance, I knew my audience. Okay. And so, um, but if your audience is not known to you as well, if you don't know that there's a specific interest that you really actually want to engage, I think the key there is, again, going back to this idea of a of a clear narrative that has those first five minutes that are engaging and gives them a framework for thinking about what you're going to talk about. Because if you have that, I think as, a, as when I listen to talks, if the speaker gives me that, then I can actually more easily find the moments where my own interests actually coincide with what's being talked about. And, you know, in in many instances, I've actually, that's been the starting point for having either a conversation where I learned something or even building a collaboration. So I think, you know, there's, there's two ways of approaching it. One is, you know, your audience so well that you build in the moments that you think there's a, there's an opportunity for thinking together. Um, you know, for um, and in the more general cases, you make sure that there is a framework that is inclusive enough that anyone who might be interested with something to add could find an opening for thinking in their specific way, given what you're talking about. Oh. And I think that's it's a challenge. I mean, yeah. I think the the latter is more of a challenge than the mm-hmm. former. I mean, mm-hmm. if you know you're walking into a room of people who have this interest, mm-hmm. then you know that you can build into your presentation those specific times, those specific moments where you actually ask the audience for their expertise and you acknowledge their expertise as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that actually is is an important thing yeah. to acknowledge the expertise. I mean, it's the there's a it's famous speaking uh, to experts as well. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a famous quote from I think it was Jacques Monod. It might have been Francois Jacob. I get those two confused. Um, they're all French. You won't find me correct. <laughs> <laughs> Um, they figured out how genes actually worked and won the Nobel okay. Prize for it. So, and they're French, but. One of them said, you must assume that every audience you speak to is infinitely ignorant, but infinitely intelligent. And uh, I love that. <laughs> and I, you know, it, it has been my my touchstone, my guiding phrase for doing all of this is that basically he's saying they may not know the specifics of what you're going to talk about, but they are perfectly capable of understanding it if you give them the way in if, if you, you give them the way in wow if you what a what a great thought what a, what a I mean, I'm, I'm going to say what a great thought to to end our conversation with okay <laughs> well and it's not mine it belongs to no. either francois or jacques <laughs> <laughs> 
but but your thoughts also that you shared, I think, are really insightful. So to recap, um, the the more you know your audience, the easier it is to create those moments where you can be reasonably sure that they're really connecting with you, and that that really. Uh, creates fertile ground for those follow-ups that we were talking about. Exactly. And if you don't have that specific knowledge of your audience, you still need to give them a way in. And you mentioned the the first five minutes where you're creating that that framework, that almost that uh, metaphorical framework where they can grasp what you're talking about and 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 you know find a a hook to hang the new information right. on to mesh with what they already know. Um, and uh, and you keep me keep mentioning moments, and I think that's mm-hmm. that's so important. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because particularly when you're when you're giving a talk or a lecture, there is usually a lot of information. A lot of it hasn't been heard, and you need those moments because those are also the times when people refresh their attention. They find a new yeah. way of in reengaging in what you're saying. Um, and I mean, again, to use the theatrical metaphor, you know, moments in the course of a performance, you know, act one, scene one to act, give you that opportunity to re-engage your attention, to care about what happens to character X or, yes. and so I think that that metaphor helps there as well. Well, thank you so much for, for pulling together for this audience, these ideas of uh, how moments work in the overall scheme of, of communicating your your work and, and uh, the importance of helping people see the before and after so they know why something is important. So if someone were to follow up, want to follow up with you based on the moments that have engaged their attention in this program, how best might they do that? Um, the best way is to go to the website of the Fralin Biomedical Research Institute at Virginia Tech and to click on the research button. And then there's a, there is the listing of all of the laboratories of the Institute. And mine will be listed under my name or as the Laboratory of Developmental Disorders and Genetics. Laboratory of Developmental Disorders. And the Fralin Institute is spelled how? F-R-A-L-I-N. It seems straightforward so, enough. It is. It is phonetic, as so few things are. Um, so, okay. Well, it's been wonderful having this conversation with you. Thank you for taking the time to be on and this program with me. Thank you for asking me. I don't think we're often asked enough to step back and say not only what is it you do, but how is it that you try to do it effectively. And so I've really appreciated that opportunity. Good. Thank so you. Glad. So glad. And people will be able to follow up with you through the Freeland Institute. And if anyone wants to follow up with me, if you have a comment or question on this program or a suggestion for future guests, simply go to storyandscience.com. That's storyandscience.com, the homepage of this program. And you can uh, find other information about me and the work I do and find the uh, schedule consultation button and get on my schedule for a conversation. I always love to hear from my audience members. And as always, I'm David Odie with the Power of Story and Science, and I thank you for being part of the Story and Science community. This has been the Power of Story and Science. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend, leave us a review, or so that you don't miss anything, Subscribe at Podbean or wherever you like to get your podcasts. 
This program is a production of Speaking of Solutions, LLC. Theme music by Kevin Lufkin. I'm David Odie. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.